Hey guys, and welcome to the Money Podcast. I'm gonna start today's show with a quote. Ready? Here's the quote. President Biden said no one making under $400,000 will see their federal taxes go up. That's a lie. In fact, under his plan, an average family who earns over $50,000 will see a tax increase. That quote was from Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He said that on September 30th while discussing the Biden $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan now being debated in Congress. Now, here's a recent quote from President Biden. I give you my word as a Biden. If you make under $400,000 a year, I'll never raise your taxes. Not one cent. But I'm going to make sure those at the top start paying their fair share in taxes. Okay, guys, you heard both those quotes. One of these people is obviously lying. But as they say, there are three types of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. While facts are always facts, when things get complex, and taxes certainly do that, politicians tend to manipulate statistics to fit their desired outcome. Nonetheless, one of these guys is more right than the other one. Should this proposal pass, either taxes are going to go up for the middle class or they're not. And that's what this week's Money Podcast is all about. Cutting through the BS, finding out exactly what Biden's Build Back Better plan, the social spending plan promises to do, who it's going to affect, and who's really going to be on the hook to pay for it. As you listen, though, keep in mind, this is a moving target. This bill is likely to have major changes and spending reductions before it goes through Congress, if it passes at all. But if nothing else, I thought it'd be cool to have, a, have some kind of a glimpse at how something is seemingly simple is how policies are paid for is often anything but simple. As usual, my co-host will be financial journalist Miranda Marquette. Hello, Miranda. Hey, Stacy. Listening in and sometimes contributing is our producer, Aaron Friedman. Hey, Aaron. He made it through that Build Back Better tongue twister. It was awesome. I, I, I did. I'm, I'm sure I'm spitting all over the microphone, too. <laughs> also with us today is a special guest is Chris Arrestus. Chris is a retirement expert, and he's president of retirementgenius.com. Hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Well, hey, thanks for having me on board. It's a pleasure to join you. Before we get started, folks, our usual disclaimer, we're probably not going to today, but if we should mention any specific investments on this podcast, that doesn't mean they're recommendations. You never invest based solely on anything we say because we don't know your situation. You got to form your own opinions. You got to make your own decisions. Okay, let's get back to the topic at hand. Miranda, if you wouldn't mind, lead us off and tell me what is in this social plan that, that Biden's got going on started at three and a half trillion, probably not going to end up there. But what's he trying to accomplish here? Well, first of all, it's, it's hard to say exactly what's in it because uh, all this, it, it keeps changing, right? So, but part of what they're doing in addition to what you call hard infrastructure, which is like building the roads, building the bridges, building the railways, um, is there's a lot of stuff in there that's designed to address some of the, um, it kind of expands the definition of infrastructure, right? So it includes provisions for childcare. It in, in, um, includes a lot of things like that that we don't normally think of as infrastructure, uh, but that could potentially um, provide jobs or in those areas or provide help to families who need child care in order to send people to go to work. So uh, they also have tax credits to build or re rehabilitate homes in underserved communities. Um, zoning laws are included in here. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot uh, of stuff. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff. And it's also, once again, um, it's hard to say exactly what's going to make it through the final cut. There are several revisions already. And there's a, another plan to pair it back to two, tri- $2 trillion instead of $3.5 trillion. So as with all things that come <laughs> come before Congress, um, we really don't know what the final is going to look like at this particular time. Now, now, here's a few things that I, I jotted down is what's in the bill. Universal pre-K, in other words, free mm-hmm. kindergarten, free community college for two years, uh, f- some kind of subsidized child care, uh, the child tax credit, which is uh, going out now, but they're going to try to continue it uh, at an elevated level, national paid family and medical leave, climate-related tax breaks, and new be- Medicare benefits. I'm a Medicare recipient myself. I'm 66 year old. I don't know how old you are, Chris, but anyway, uh, they're they're talking about adding vision and dental to Medicare. This all sounds mm-hmm. pretty good to me. Yep. Uh, yeah, they're also is, talking. They're also talking about uh, giving Medicare the ability to negotiate for uh, cheaper prices on uh, prescription drugs. Yeah. Anything else, Chris, that you can think of? Because this bill has a ton of stuff in it. I wrote down a few things. Is there anything else that we're leaving out? Well, you know, what's interesting is how how there are different ways to define what infrastructure is, just like there are different ways to define what is middle class. You know, it, it, it's true. all in the eye of the beholder. Actually, let's stop there because I'm curious about this. The normal definition of infrastructure would not encompass any of the things I just said. Do you guys consider this infrastructure? And and why is it called infrastructure? Anybody hazard a guess? <laughs> I will, and that's kind of what I said, right? This this bill kind of expands the definition of infrastructure, and I think it kind of addresses some of the issues we have in a more service based economy now, where we have right. And one of the things that the pandemic laid bare for us, especially in terms of childcare, is that you know childcare is kind of essential to the the workforce having access to affordable childcare. Um, is something that we need if we're going to put people to work. If, if you want people to go to work, they have to have uh, an affordable way to watch their children. And so I think that's part of the issue there is by saying, okay, well, um, part of the folks that keep infrastructure going, if, if they're going to build bridges, if they're going to build roads, if they're going to go to service industry jobs, whatever it is, you know, just is childcare part of that? So I think that's just kind of, you know, one of the things they're doing to expand that, the idea of, okay, well, community college, uh, universal pre-K, all of these educational things are tied to our jobs market. They are tied to what we can do. I mean, for instance, right, my son started at a local community college and he is going to be studying welding. Well, you need welders to build infrastructure. So um, so by supporting these programs that you can use to build infrastructure, you're kind of building like this pipeline that does benefit you down the road. So I think that it's just kind of an interesting way to look at it and a way to kind of expand it and say, okay, how are all of these things interconnected? How is our education system interconnected with how um, the kinds of jobs we have, how our workforce, how is it all interconnected and how does it impact our ability to uh, build all of these things? You know, and and I think this bill also addresses other aspects of infrastructure that we haven't really thought about before. I mean, we always think about roads and bridges, but I mean, it looks at high speed internet 
right? Internet is rapidly becoming. Oh, that's part like of this too, isn't public, it? I, I, yeah. didn't re- I didn't mention that. A part it. of uh, it's rapidly becoming public utility. Our water infrastructure is oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is crumbling around us. I mean, so right. there's things oh, but like that's, that. That's part of the other bill, though. The, the uh, right, but yeah, it's okay. all. I'm sorry, I forgot about that. But it's all kind of in there to sort of say, okay. Um, how is all of this interconnected now and how do we help people? How does helping people help the rest of our infrastructure and our economy? We actually have a birth decline in the U.S. and we kind of need more human beings to start paying it forward to Social Security and, and just have a, a workforce in general. So having that put in where you have daycare will actually allow a lot more workers to go, hey, I can have kids now. You know, I, I don't have this this burden of how, yeah, the how, child am, I, tax credit too. how am I going to, you know, juggle a job and, and uh, have kids, you know? Yeah. And this isn't just about looking at ourselves in a vacuum, but we've got to look at the global economy and how we compete. You know, are we losing some of our competitive edge uh, because we're not keeping up with other countries when it comes to uh, availability of high speed Internet access or or. Uh, fielding a competitive workforce, a well-educated workforce. So we, we have to look at what our competitors have and where they're gaining a competitive edge over us. And, and we have to meet those challenges. And that's another way of looking at these uh, expanded ideas of what makes infrastructure. It's us not just looking at ourselves, but looking outwardly and how are we going to compete and maintain our competitive edge. Chris, you took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say, too, especially if you want to call this infrastructure, because essentially what it does is it enhances our global competitiveness by educating our population. If we can have kids in universal pre-K, if, if, if parents are free to be more productive by having uh, subsidized child care, uh, and, and if there's free community college, these are all things that are going to help all of us on the world stage, one would think. Uh, now, as to whether it's really infrastructure or not i think it's it's it may just be a, a marketing label but i do think that it's that it's valuable i mean i can't think of anything that i named that i don't think would be cool to have uh, i mean i i think having free community college is a great idea uh i i don't have any kids but i like the idea of you guys who do being able to be more productive because you don't have to freak out uh about child care i also like the idea of of uh, people in medicare not me so much necessarily but Hey, you know what happens when your when your teeth rot? Your whole health goes down, and who pays for that? We do, the taxpayer for people on Medicare. So I think I think a lot of these things make a lot of sense. Yeah, and and I'm also a big fan of giving Medicare the ability to negotiate for uh, better prices for prescription drugs. Medicare is the biggest insurer in this country, and it has no ability to negotiate with drug companies for better rates and using its its collective bargaining power with the with the uh, pharmaceutical industry to get better prices for seniors, which eats up more dollars uh, going into the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies instead of keeping it in the pockets of, of our seniors who are already very stressed when it comes to their financial situation. Totally on your team again, Chris, because if you want to hear me yell Talk to me about drug pricing. Talk to me about how come I have to go to Canada to get to, to buy drugs that are made, you know, down the block. I mean, this right. is just ridiculous. The system right. we have is nuts. So, yes, I, I totally agree with that. And it just shows. And, and, and Chris, you used to work as a lobbyist, you told me. Uh, and that shows you how powerful the lobby is for the pharmaceutical industry. That, I'm not, by the way, suggesting Chris worked for, as a lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry. He did not. But that is a powerful lobby. 
It, it is. It's a very powerful lobby. Right now, probably the two most powerful lobbying armies that have mobilized in Washington, D.C. are either uh, the big tech companies and the pharmaceutical companies. They both have a lot on the line right now. Cool. But you know what, you guys, here's what I want to do next. Well, before we leave this topic, do we all agree or do some of us disagree? Are all these things worthy of doing? The things that we were able to name, just like roads and bridges, I think we could probably all agree are important to our country. Um, can we agree? Or are there some of these things you think is too much social engineering? Or, or would we all generally agree that the types of things that are being proposed in this bill are worthy? Well, you know, every, everything on the menu looks delicious. The problem is when the bill comes at the end. Ah, that was a great way of putting it. Miranda, what do you think? Does, that, does everything on the menu look delicious? Oh, definitely. I definitely think it looks delicious. Um, I just think it's always very interesting to us. A couple of things, the two things that we do when we talk about framing these things. Whenever we talk about this sort of social spending or this type of a bill, we we put it in terms of the total amount. So, okay, it's going to cost $3.5 trillion over 10 years, which freaks people out, right? Oh my gosh, that's a huge number. It's $3.5 trillion. But that's over 10 years. So that's $350 billion a year. Still, a very big number. But we don't seem to sit back and question some of the things like how they frame, okay, defense spending is about what, $750 billion, $780 billion a year, a year. But they don't sit here and say, oh, well, our defense defense spending uh, are the you know, is 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 getting $7.5 trillion. We don't we don't say that, right? Yeah, because this is over um, 10 so, years. Right. Yeah, and that's over ten years, right? Instead, yeah. we 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 choose the smaller yearly number for the, def, the you know our defense spending, and I'm using air quotes around the word defense, but whatever. And so, uh, but we spend that. That's how much we spend on that. And one of the things we haven't rolled back to ask ourselves is, okay, yes, how are we going to pay for it? Fine. Do we need to spend seven point five trillion dollars over ten years? on this? Can we shift some of that into some of the social spending? So I think the framing that we use when we talk about it is very frustrating, especially um, as a journalist and seeing how the media portrays this stuff. It's kind of frustrating to me because it doesn't allow people a real chance to compare apples to apples. And then it also is frustrating because it's like, well, let's maybe what we need to do before we start talking about spending and costs and how much things cost is take a step back and have a discussion about our national priorities. I don't think that's a good idea. And you sound a lot like Abby Hoffman there. Okay. So you just need to take it down a notch. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> but no, yeah, but okay. here, you know what? Here, yeah, tell I've the woman this... on the podcast to take it down a notch. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly where I wanted to be right now. Cause we're about to take a break. And when we come back, I, I want to talk about how we're funding this stuff, because therein lies the most interesting part of all this stuff to me. But I think before we go to break, we can all agree. I mean, hey, I'm down like James Brown. You want to you want to make my my uh, neighborhood smarter. You want to keep my fellow Medicare recipients from bumping into posts by giving them free glasses and, and keep their teeth from rotting out of their head. I'm down. I like it. But how are we going to pay for it? That's what we're going to talk about. Don't move. Well, we're going to be right back. And here we are. We're back. Now we're going to start talking about how this stuff is getting funded. Going back to what I said at the intro, I don't know if you guys were paying attention or, or adjusting your microphones. We have one guy in the in the uh, House, uh, the Rep a Republican, saying everyone over fifty thousand dollars of income is going to get taxed under this plan, and then we got the president saying, "Read my lips. If you don't make under if you don't make under over four hundred grand, you're not going to pay a penny for all this good stuff." 
Which one of those people is right, Chris? Well, it, the focus is to uh, get more tax revenue out of people who are making above $400,000. Now, the, the interesting thing is, do we define in this country somebody who makes $400,000 uh, as being part of the mega rich? Or or is that middle class? I mean, depending on where you live in this country, $400,000, if you're living in New York City, you're living in Washington, D.C., you're living in you know a, a number of the major metro areas, uh, that can start to feel pretty middle class itself. So, so if you're saying to people that the middle class won't be impacted by this, that's that's not, I think, exactly accurate. Uh, certainly, people who make four hundred thousand dollars and above uh, are are successful, uh, and it represents uh, about one point eight percent of households in the United States. Uh, and an opportunity to be able to raise significant dollars. And it certainly is getting popular response, particularly when you look at the outrage that's come as people have seen the way that the truly super rich have been able to avoid paying taxes. So, you know, it, it, as of right now, going after that number and above, if you want to call it, uh, that's the mark for the super rich, you're, then you're going after them. But I kind of feel like for, for many areas of the country, you're still touching the middle class. Well, yeah, th okay, but you, you said yourself, though, 1.8% for people, people making over 400000 But that's not even the question, though. Let's stop for a second now. Listen to this. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, that's a lie. Under under the under the Biden plan, the average family who earns over fifty thousand dollars is going to see a tax increase. Where the hell did he get that from? Where? Let's hear from Angela Davis. I, I mean Miranda. <laughs> I mean his ass, maybe. I mean, I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, Kevin. I I don't know where he got it. Kevin McCarthy is not super super. He's not great the only on one saying that either. Things called facts. But uh, anyway, um, but I, I think one of the things you do have to work at, uh, look at when you're looking at this is I think one of the biggest things is the they're talking about who's going to pay for it, how, how it's going to be paid for, et cetera, et cetera, is um, one of the big rollbacks. And one of the things that uh, if we're giving him the benefit of a doubt of the doubt might be that he's talking about uh, the provision in the bill that gets rid of the uh, pass-through deduction. So um, the uh, Tax Cuts and Job Act that didn't actually spur economic growth according to multiple studies that was passed in 2000. Anyway, that thing, um, it, it, uh, it offered a, de a deduction for most pass-through businesses. And so, um, so even though 60% of the benefits went to the richest 1%, it's also something that folks who make under $400,000 a year can take advantage of. And it's uh, one of those things where if you have a small business, if you are running a small business and you don't have a whole lot of income, um, but but you lose this tax deduction, that could kind of um, you know, kind of actually hit you. Um, it, it's actually something that's probably going to affect me. I don't make as much as you do, Stacey. <laughs> I don't make as much as this $400,000 a year. But if this passes and this pass-through deduction goes away, it will impact me even though I make less than $400,000 a year. So I think that's probably one of the issues there. That's the closest thing that I can figure, um, you know, honestly. 
Would but you, I do like Chris know, has a better and, idea. And, and Chris, <laughs> if you'd like to comment on this, I actually looked this up. Uh, I, I can tell you why uh, the Republicans are, are saying that people who make $50,000 a year are going to be affected by this. Uh, and here's the reason why. There's something called the, um, it's the Urban Institute, Brookings Tax Policy Center, TPC. Okay. I'm going to read you a little bit, well, my notes, but um, Republican leaders rely on an economic model that uses the idea of tax incidents when estimating how much people pay. Stay with me here. This model says any tax that clearly targets companies and wealthy stockholders can be interpreted as a middle-class tax hike. In a nutshell, here's the logic. When companies face higher taxes, they make less money. When they make less money, some of that money they didn't make comes in the form of lower salaries. Some of that loss shows up in the form of lower salaries. That's a major reason why. Now, listen to this. Virtually any policy that raises taxes on corporations can be portrayed as a middle-class tax hike. What, what did you think of that, Chris? What did you think of that logic? Well, that's a logic we've been we've heard many times in many different ways, you know, sort of the trickle down uh, economics type of theories. So do, do you do you buy that? Is it well, is it a tax hike for the middle class? I, not directly. If you want to make if you want to make arguments about indirect tax hikes uh, that that come in a variety of forms through the economy and through workers, um, you can make that argument, but there's no direct tax hikes for the middle class that are being proposed in this. So here's a question I have for you guys. It's a philosophical question. I know none of us know the answer to this. We all just agreed that there's some pretty cool stuff in here. I mean, who doesn't want to see kids get free kindergarten or, or get free child care or have kids get free um, junior college? We, but So why is it that some people are standing on television screaming about middle-class tax hikes. In other words, why don't they want this to happen? Because, well, I'll just leave it right there. Why don't they want this to happen? What's their, what are they really after? Well, this is more about political leverage. In the current political environment that we live in, much different than what I when I was working in Washington, D.C., it was the 90s and early 2000s. So you still had an environment where people could work together there was compromise. There was bipartisanship. It was it was it was very centrist, and now you have uh, zero sum warfare happening politically, where it really all becomes about being being able to to marshal your supporters and and your forces for the next election. That's really where we are now. It's just battling. The, the the time to legislate is now just battles in between elections, which is really what it's all about. It's really not even representing people anymore. It's winning a game. Huh. Yeah, it's just we're just in zero sub warfare from between elections, having these arguments and, and trying to play to our bases, whether you're on the left or the right. Uh, and And we're not getting the things done that we used to get done. And what do we do about that, Chris? You're, 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 of all of us on this podcast, you're certainly the most experienced. What do we do? But, you know, part of what we're going to do is we've got to ride a little bit of this, of this rocky waters as uh, there's a generational change that, that is 
coming. I think we're in the very last uh, uh, of the generation that's currently, you know, the age that they're at, that that have been previously in the White House, currently in the White House. And there's a generational sea change. There's a demographic sea change that's that's underway. Uh, and I think that coupled with some some truly existential issues that that we're facing, uh, not only as a country, but as a planet, uh, are, are going to come together to force real action uh, as opposed to just battling over elections. Interesting. Now, see, I assumed, Chris, I didn't know Chris before this podcast, but I assumed that you were going to be rep- that you were going to say, yeah, there is a tax hike for people making over 50,000. It sounds like we're all pretty much on the same side of the table here. And I don't mean to imply that we're all Democrats. In fact, I have no idea what your political affiliation is. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm socially as liberal as you could possibly get. But fiscally, I'm a conservative. I pay a lot of income tax. and I'm not super happy about it either. So I don't want anyone out there listening to think that this is all about, you know, this is MSNBC or something. It isn't. Uh, I'm a a money guy and I'm not real happy about paying a lot of income tax. But but this looks to me, and, and maybe we can boil this down now and then we can move on to our question and we'll be done for the day. But it, it looks to me like if you are, they, they are really just taxing rich people to supply these benefits to the rest of the country. I mean, that's what it looks like to me in the extensive reading that I've done. Does anyone agree or disagree with that statement? In terms of direct taxation, it, it, it really does hinge on that $400,000 number and above. But there are other elements of, of tax policy that will have impacts, that can and will have impact on the middle class, changes in, in access to the backdoor Roth IRA, for example, uh, increase in the, in the top capital gain rate from 20 to 25%. Don't you have to uh, so- be rich for that to occur? Uh, yes, yes, yes. But but that still, yeah. the, there are impacts that people will feel, whether directly or indirectly. But okay, it's, yeah, and, and you're right, Chris, I apologize that I should have given you more an opportunity to express what you meant by middle by this affecting the middle class. For the first thing you said was essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the middle class isn't just people who make 50 grand. I mean, you can, if you work, you live in New York City, you, you can make 300 grand and be middle class. So, I mean, it does affect some of those people. But That's is right. it going to affect anybody making 50 grand? I mean, in a, you know, in a material way? No, I, not not in terms of hitting them from a taxation standpoint. Okay, so, so in fact, the, the, in fact, the, the the benefits for for anybody in that class is will far outweigh uh, the negatives. Okay, cool. So let me okay, let me take it back to the beginning one more time. One guy says anyone making over fifty grand is going to get a tax hike. The president says nobody over four hundred grand is going to pay a penny. It's all going to be paid for by the rich folk. Which one of them is right? I think Biden's more right. I mean, like, uh, you know, one of the things I, that I thought of, too, in going over this, reading all this stuff, I've been reading about this all week. Anyway, it was that remember when tax, when corporate income taxes went from 35 to 21? It was just a couple of years ago. And remember how all the corporations slashed their prices on everything because they were saving billions of dollars in income tax? No, you don't remember that, do you? Oh, yeah. And raised. Oh, and, and they definitely happen. raised wages, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone got. Actually, by the way, I read a, I read a study last night that was very difficult to read. Um, it was, you know, not popular press. And, and the wages actually did go up after the 2017 uh, tax cut by one point three percent. That's factoring out other things that would have, you know, trying to factor out other things that would have occurred anyway. Uh, but by and large, corporations kept that money and they bought back stock. 
uh, that's what they did. And and I, and I don't think charging them, you know, raising the tax rate from 21 to 26 and a half. Remember, it used to be 35. And part of this bill is going to raise that from 21 to 26 and a half, I think is what they're proposing now. It's probably not going to cause corporations to close their doors or fire their workers. Because they sure as hell didn't open more doors or hire more workers when their taxes got cut by 40%. So uh, I, I don't really see a problem with any of this. I do see a problem with taxing Stacey Johnson more. That, that I think is, should be illegal. But uh, I have no problem with taxing Apple more. <laughs> I just don't. I think the, the bill costs seem high to everybody. But then again, I, I think we kind of live in this I got to get mine society. Can't really figure out the future. So I don't think we're capable of quantifying the future monetarily. Um, so like benefits like, you know, school and 5G and smart roads and clean energy, I think uh, it probably have more benefit than, than than the cost of the bill. I think so, too. Yeah. yeah I just I'd say, you know, instead of referring to things as costs, we really should be re looking at them as investments. We've got to make these investments in uh, our country's ability to compete, our country's ability to provide safe roads, bridges. We need the things that are, are, are for the most part being proposed in this are investments that we need now and into the future. And if we're not making them, we're just going to keep falling behind instead of moving forward. This is a really spirited discussion, by the way, guys. I really appreciate it. Aaron, I did want to ask you one thing before we went to our question. What did you think of all this? You were pretty much sitting on the sidelines listening to us all talk. What, what, what did you think? I actually have a, a little conclusion. I don't know if you guys can tell me if I'm right or wrong about this. But so prior to World War One and Two, America was kind of an isolationist country. And out of that, uh, you know, we got automobiles. We've, we got microwaves, radios, nuclear energy, the space station, you know. So we prospered quite a lot from the amount of extraordinary amount of money that it cost us through those two wars. So the infrastructure bill, you could think of it kind of like that, where we're spending a lot of money to gain a lot more in our country just without the bloodshed. I agree. That's that's well said. Well put. Oh, along with that, I mean, the massive public works projects that took place during the Depression and in the years after also provided a lot of jobs and income for people. Yes, it did. And, you know, when you look at things that, you know, when, when you look at expenditures, and I think Chris alluded to this earlier in the show, too, uh, there are investments and then there are expenditures. You know, I mean, when, when you're investing in making your population more educated or more healthy, that's going to come, that's going to pay dividends. And they could be big dividends. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a difference between buying a, a new shirt and, and buying a computer that's going to make you more productive. So we hope that the investments that we're discussing here today and other ones too uh, make us more productive and not and aren't just uh, aren't just taking us on vacation, you know. So that's the kind of thing we want to spend money on, right? Oh, by the way, I will add something too that I neglected to mention at the outset. We were talking about what was in the bill and how it's going to go from three and a half trillion down to two trillion or less. A, a lot of the way it's going to be reduced, from what I'm reading anyway. Uh, is, isn't necessary to cut out any of, the, any of the major components, but it is to means test some of them. For example, you might get free child care or subsidized child care, depending on your income. You might get the expanded tax, uh, child tax credit, depending on your income. So it, I think originally when it was proposed, a lot of this was going to be across the board, no matter who. Um, but this, so they may make part of this, even, even the new Medicare benefits. For, for vision and uh, dental, they make that they may make that dependent on income too. So that's probably how they're going to reduce the cost of a lot of these programs and hopefully not eliminate a lot of them if they get this ever passed at all, which who knows. 
Um, any other comments before we go to our question? You're going to answer our question today, Miranda. Anybody have any questions or any comments before we do that? Uh, Here's your question, Miranda. And Chris, you're welcome to join in here too. Yeah. Or, or, or Aaron, for that matter. Uh, our question today comes from Anonymous. They did not uh, give us their name. Here's our question. When a person dies, does a spouse that has power of attorney become liable for all the bills of the dead spouse? So, so in, in general, for the most part, uh, debt in your name, when you die, uh, you know, your estate may have to be responsible to pay it off depending on how things work out. But for the most part, your debt is your debt. Your spouse is usually not responsible for that. Now, there are some caveats here. If you co-signed on the loan, so if you co-signed on your spouse's loan, well, now you're responsible for it. If it's a joint account, now you're responsible for it. Uh, depending on the law you're in and the debt that it is, maybe you will have to pay off that debt uh, in order to clear the estate. Um, and then, of course, there's there are community property states, uh, and those community property states, like the one I live in, Idaho, you might actually end up uh, having to pay off the debt of the surviving, uh, you know, of your deceased spouse. So that's kind of frustrating. So it's really kind of important to take a step back, look at the state law involved, and kind of look for ways to protect yourself. Uh, because for the most part, no, you're probably not going to have to be responsible for it. But at the same time, it depends on how the law is written in your state. It depends on the type of debt that it is. And it depends on how the estate is going to be settled. Remember, to not confuse the concept of power of attorney that you are legally empowered to act on somebody's behalf to you have now legally become responsible for for inheriting and taking over all their debts. So it becomes a matter of what is community property, particularly in the case of a spouse, which which was the definition of the question. So what's community property between them? What then what debts had are still responsible to based on that community property holding in that position. Uh, but, but there could certainly be elements of debt that the person would not be responsible for uh, outside of what would meet the definition of their community property as uh, having been married. Awesome. And yeah, actually, Chris, I'm glad you said that because I was going to point that out too where I answering that question because what we had here was a conflation of two things, power of attorney and spouse. Uh, you, you, power of attorney means you can operate, you can act for somebody in their behalf. Uh, a spouse is a completely different thing. So, you know, you, you don't have to be somebody's spouse to have their power of attorney. So a power of attorney is never going to be responsible for somebody else's debt because all you have is the ability to sign for them, basically, or to decide in the case of a health care power of attorney whether you know, to make health care decisions on their behalf. But that isn't a debt, and that isn't a debt you, though. Being a spouse can right. debt you depending on where you live. Right. Important not to confuse those two. Yeah. All right, then. I, I, we had such a great uh, discussion today, guys. I really appreciate it. I guess we're out of time, guys. But you know what? We are never, ever out of topic. <laughs> Dig deeper. You're going to find links to tons more information in our show notes. And remember, if your goal is to make more, to spend less, to retire rich, your online home is moneytalksnews.com. And don't forget to check out Miranda's online home as well. That is Miranda Marquit, M-A-R-Q-U-I-T.com. And of course, you want to see Chris. He's right there at his website, Retirement Genius. Com. That's retirementgenius.com. If you've got a question, comment, or you're just mad as hell and you want to talk to us about it, tell us. You can email us at hello at moneytalksnews.com. That's hello at moneytalksnews.com. 
And one last thing, if you appreciate what we do, then do something for us. Subscribe to this podcast. Takes you two seconds, helps us out a lot. So if you like us, show us and subscribe. I'm Stacey Johnson. And I'm Miranda Marquette. And I'm Aaron Freeman. And Chris Arrestus, thanks so much for having me today. You betcha. Thanks for being here, Chris. Thanks for hanging out. And we're going to see you, everybody, right here next time.